All right, Luke has shown us over the past few weeks that Jesus has authority. Authority in his teaching, authority over demons, authority over sickness, over nature. And this week we're going to see Jesus' authority over the law. Now Jesus was not a law breaker, but as the law giver, he knows the spirit of the law and the correct interpretation of the law. Rules are great for children because they are simple and direct. But principles are what is needed for adults who face situations that aren't always black and white. And you know, as your children mature, one of the things that we tried to do was take them from rules when they were little to principles as they aged and help them learn the skills of critical thinking and that kind of, that kind of stuff. And so spiritually, we have to get away from just thinking about rules and start thinking about godly principles. You know, Jesus lived in this complicated world that we live in, and yet he did so without sin. If we aspire to live without sin, we're really going to need to understand how to prioritize our decisions. Um, And I'm probably talking too much about politics, forgive me, but one of the things that sort of surprised me uh, in 2016 was I would hear Christians uh, thinking mature Christians that I respected and they would say something that I didn't understand. They would say, I just don't know what to do in voting. And I wondered how that could be because there was one choice that would clearly be showing love for my neighbor if I cast that ballot. And there was another choice that would be showing uh, disdain for my neighbor if I cast that ballot. And a lot of my neighbors, by the way, are unborn children. And so I wanted to vote in such a way that I was showing love to my neighbor. And so we need to be able to contextualize the hard choices in life with the principles in the Word of God. And we're going to see sort of how to do that today. Today we'll see Jesus and his disciples doing things the Pharisees did not approve of. Uh, Now, did Jesus violate the law? No, he never, never did. The Pharisees had a deficient understanding of the law. And that's why they were so hostile to the things that we're going to read about Jesus doing. Now, let's read our passage together. We're going to be in Luke 5, starting in verse 33. And we're going to go through chapter 6, verse 11. You guys know that the chapters um, in the Bible were added far, far, far after the Bible was written. And sometimes they make sort of an illogical break in the narrative. And so don't be confined to where those chapters are. The original authors didn't put chapters in there. All right, starting in verse 33 of Luke 5. And they said to him, the disciples... now." He went home with Levi last week. You remember that? He went home with Levi and the Pharisees are talking to him. So these Pharisees say, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst and the, burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to do harm, to save life, or to, to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now what was it that the Pharisees asked? Did they say, The Bible says that you are supposed to fast twice a week. Why don't you obey it? Well, no, they didn't say that. Why? Because the Bible doesn't give us that prescription. So instead, um, you know, they were saying the disciples of John fast and offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So they didn't say, look, the Bible says do this and your folks aren't doing it. They said, other people do this. Why don't your people do this? Now, it wasn't a biblical command It was a tradition, right? There's nothing wrong with fasting. Uh, It's it's good for your health. It's good for your spiritual health. Luke 5.35 says, and this is Jesus talking, and he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So Jesus obviously doesn't have a problem with fasting. There's something wrong with applying your self-imposed standards to other people. And that's what we need to learn from this passage. For instance, let's take a, a, a rule that you make up for yourself. Let's say that when you are watching TV and a commercial comes on, uh, it causes you to covet. Let's say that you love cars. And every time a car commercial comes on, you think, man, I want that car. I really, I'm dissatisfied with the car I have. I really wish I had that car. If you were to have that problem, it would be wise of you to say, I'm not going to watch commercials because it causes me to covet. Now, taking that and applying it to somebody else, though, doesn't make sense because then you're putting your your baggage onto them, right? And so we don't want to do that. Now, is that okay for you to impose on yourself? Yes, it's wonderful for you to impose on yourself if it helps you not to sin. But you can't take that rule and place it on other people and expect them to abide by it. Uh, One example is, I used to watch football. Y'all remember back when football had nothing to do with politics? (laughs) Yeah, that was good stuff, wasn't it? Well, I used to watch football. 
And this is embarrassing to say, but I'm just going to tell you, I would get upset <laughs> when things didn't go well in football. Uh, if, if Eli and, and the Giants were losing, I would become angry. If Ole Miss was getting whipped on, which is pretty regular, I would get mad. <laughs> and I would have a bad day. And I would spend all of Saturday in a foul mood. And I wouldn't be enjoying my family because I was angry about a stupid football game. Now, that's horrible. And I know y'all going, how immature of you. I know, I know. So what I did about that was I said, this is ridiculous. I care way too much about football. It's affecting the quality time I have with my family. This is stupid. I've got to stop. And so I stopped watching football. Now, I can watch football now because I have put it in its proper perspective. But I would have never come to you and said, look, you need to quit watching football because you're going to get upset and act stupid. No, that was me. And that was my problem. That was my issue. And I had to refrain from football. But I don't want to put that on you, right? So what about when it comes to a real biblical mandate? I mean, not watching football is not a biblical mandate. But what happens when there's a real one? Like the Bible says, do not forsake the assembly. A clear command in Scripture for all believers, right? Is it okay to impose that on yourself? Yes, it's not only okay, it's necessary. Now, is it okay for us to require other people to abide by that biblical command? Well, yes, the answer is yes. Not only is it okay, but it's necessary for a church to operate that way. That's why our Constitution says... Members who choose to become inactive in the church will be counseled with regarding their desire to re-engage the body or discontinue membership. Now, it would be unwise and wrong to stick to that during a pandemic, okay? (laughs) So I'm not talking about right now. But in general, if our people who say they're members choose to stop fellowshipping with us, and I don't mean folks that are in a nursing home. I don't mean folks that are homebound, obviously. But people that can come if they just decide they don't want to come, the reason we put this in our Constitution is so that we can go to them and say, guys, you know, you've been out of church for, for a while. We want to know what's wrong. How can we help you? Can we pick you up? What can we do? And if they say, no, nah, I just, you know, I like, to, I like to hang out and play late on Saturday night, so I don't feel like coming on Sunday. Well, we're going to lovingly ask those folks to reprioritize, and if they won't, then, then we'll ask them to find somewhere else to go on Christmas and Easter because we want to help them understand that they're not to forsake the assembly, right? So if it's a rule that you impose on yourself, keep it away from other folks. If it's a biblical mandate, then let's apply it to all of us so that we can keep all of us on the right track. Now let's recap this point. You need to live according to the Word of God and according to your conscience. Other believers are bound to the Word of God, but not bound by your conscience. Now, why does Jesus use the analogy of a wedding when he makes his point about fasting? Well, because it is a time of feasting and joy and celebration. When Jesus was here bodily on earth, it was a time of rejoicing, not a time of mourning. Now, he said that time of mourning is coming when I'm taken away. But right now is a time of rejoicing. The Pharisees didn't realize there was cause for celebration, though. They were just following Jesus around, kind of stalking him and trying to catch him doing something they didn't approve of. Do you know that gathering here with the saints in the presence of God is a time of rejoicing? 
You know, church is supposed to be fun. We're supposed to have joy. When people come into our church, I don't ever want them to say, man, are they having a funeral or are they having church? Now, they might say, are they having one of those New Orleans funerals where everybody gets happy? (laughs) But I want them to see that we have joy and therefore see that we have a reason for joy. You know, uh, I kind of, I grew up thinking uh, that church was a very solemn occasion. And I still think it's a solemn occasion. But, you know, I would go to church and I was Baptist from the time of conception on. And so I would go to church and we would sing and we would, uh, he'd preach and we'd do what we do. Except I'm talking about we were seriously reserved. We would sit uh, when we were told to. We would stand when we were told to. And occasionally, if somebody got all wild and crazy, they'd say, Amen. Okay? And that was the most celebratory thing that occurred. And so I learned by conditioning and by training that, man, you come, you shut up, you sit there, and you behave really well and solemnly. Now, I see something different in Scripture, though. Because David sang and danced with all his might before the Lord. You know, to such a degree that his wife, Michael, said, you're acting like a fool. You are making a fool of yourself. And what did David say? He said, okay, I'll be a fool for the Lord. So David's worship was not, you know, on the verge of depressed. (laughs) He didn't sit there looking grim and enduring worship. He had a blast in worship because he was celebrating a God of life and a God of joy. And so, folks, if you, like me, were conditioned to sit solemnly, and if you get really, really excited, maybe say, amen, let it go. Because we need to go with the biblical model of worship, not just tradition. And so, if we're up here and we're singing, up from the grave he rose again. And if we're saying that all my sins have been buried with Christ, if we're singing the beautiful truths that we sang a few moments ago, and you want to sing with all your heart, you want to raise your hands, you want to do whatever the Spirit tells you to do, go for it. Now, I know what we think. We think, I don't want to attract attention to myself. It's not about you. We know it's not about you. And we can have joy in worship. And guys, folks are made different ways. And I used to use that excuse. I used to say, well, it's my personality to be very joyful on the inside and very subdued on the outside. But then again, as I read scripture, and guys, that's what's supposed to inform us, right, (laughs) is the reading of scripture. And so I read in scripture that worship involves bowing down in front of God. Worship involves raising hands to God. Worship involves clapping before God. All these things I read in Scripture and I go, huh, I need to get a biblical idea of worship rather than just an idea of worship that I got from my childhood. So, again, I keep saying this, and if I, if I live long enough, we're going to do a study of the physicality of worship throughout Scripture and how physically involved it is. But, guys... Joy is what people ought to sense when they walk in here. They ought to sense love for one another, but also joy, immeasurable joy. Even in the midst of all the junk that's happening, even in the midst of COVID, even in the midst of people rioting in the streets, in the midst of the most contentious political season in my lifetime, they need to sense joy in here. 
Now, David, who was dancing and singing and, and making a fool of himself, according to Michael, are you going to tell me David was irreverent? Now, you know David wasn't irreverent. David was reverent and joyful at the same time, and we can be too. So it's okay for even us Baptists to have fun in church. Now, Jesus ends this section with a parable, uh, starting in verse 36. Read with me. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. So Jesus was saying that there is a new day here. He was issuing in a new covenant, the covenant of grace. So if we are under the covenant of grace, that makes the law useless, right? Well, no, because the law shows us the character of God. But trying to justify yourself by the law that is completely incompatible with grace. So it's not that we do away with the law. It's not that we now disregard the law. It's that we see the proper use of the law. And that is that you can take the law and you can look at yourself against the law and you can say, I can't live up to this. And when you realize that, that brings you to the point where you're ready to accept grace. But you cannot mix a little self-justification in with a little grace. If you try to put a little self-justification and a little grace together, that is like putting new wine in an old wineskin. And what you're going to have is this going to burst and, and you're not going to have anything. So before we are saved, the law frustrates us and, and shows us that we can't keep it. Now, that's really good, though, because once we see that, that prepares our heart for grace. And after we're saved, we love the law because it reveals to us the character of God. And it shows us how we are to live. And I tell you what, the law keeps us dependent on and really grateful for grace, doesn't it? Okay, so that's what we see with uh, Jesus talking about how you know, he, he understood things differently than these Pharisees understood things. And we're going to see here uh, the Sabbath. Because the Pharisees keep coming to him and saying, look, you are breaking the Sabbath. You're doing these things and, and you're sinning. What is the concept of the Sabbath? Um, you know, we don't, we don't talk about that a whole lot in the New Testament church. The Sabbath was meant to be a day when people would rest and commune with God. It was a time to stop everything else and worship. God put a mandatory stop to the work week. You know, people like Jimmy Knight have to have a mandatory stop to the work week, right, brother? <laughs> I asked him if I could poke fun at him. He said yes. So some of us who are workaholics, we have to say, you know, God has to say, stop, rest, worship, or we don't have an off button. Now, some of us have, you know, it's hard to get the own button going, right? But... Anyway, God says, stop and rest and focus on me. So you workaholics out there, listen up. God thinks you need at least one day off per week 
and he's smarter than we are, so we need to, we need to think about that, and we need to plan accordingly. You know, yesterday I was, uh, I, I wasn't very productive, and I was telling my wife, man, I feel bad because I'm not doing any schoolwork, and I'm not, I just haven't gotten anything done today, and she said, what are you going to talk about about the Sabbath tomorrow? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, you're right, and so I relaxed. Now, let's read about these crazy Pharisees stalking Jesus and his disciples. In chapter 6, 1 through 5, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, where in the world did these Pharisees come from? Right? These are some crazy stalker people. They are walking around, following, looking at everything that's happening, trying to find some sin to complain about. And Jesus answered them, you, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And, you know, they're... They don't have anything to say back to that because, yes, they had read that and they don't know, they don't understand it and they don't know how to answer him. Now, rubbing the heads of grain together to remove the chaff wasn't much more work than lifting a fork to your mouth, right? But it was one of these rules that they had. I mean, it's not like they were out there harvesting, right? They were just picking a couple of grains, heads of grain and rubbing them together so that they could eat them. So when we go out of our way to find and inspect the sin of others, instead of dealing with our own, we are on the fast track to becoming a Pharisee, right? Jesus teaches them, though, that the Sabbath was made for the benefit of man, not for his harm. Satan always tries to pervert God's good gifts. Some folks would ignore the Sabbath and show disdain for God by not listening to his word. Others would make the Sabbath so restrictive that what was meant for rest became a burden. And so they were just as bad as the folks that were ignoring it. Now for Jesus, people were more important than man-made religious rules. Now we've talked a lot in the last few weeks about the authority of Jesus. And here in verse 5 of chapter 6, we see that Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the challenging thing here, it's easy to say Jesus thinks people are more important than man-made religious rules, right? Because man-made religious rules don't really matter. But the challenging thing is that Jesus cites an instance where David broke a God-given religious rule when he and those who were with him ate the bread of the presence. Now, I'll get back to that more thorny question in just a moment. But read with me the next Sabbath episode in verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. So Jesus saw a need right there in front of him, and he had a choice. He could either heal this guy who was in desperate need, or 
he could ignore this guy's suffering. Now, he may have had a third choice. He might could have said, well, you know, it's the Sabbath, so I'm not going to heal this guy, but I'm going to find him tomorrow and heal him. But at that moment, he had just the choice of, do I heal him or do I let him suffer? Now, of course, Jesus chose to heal him. But did Jesus choose the lesser of two evils? No, he didn't. There's a story in the Old Testament, and I've heard preachers preach this in an in a amazing way, but I'm gonna, I may disagree with a few of them and, and may disagree with a few of you. I hope not. Joshua sent spies into the promised land, and he sent them specifically to the city of Jericho. Now, a prostitute of the city named Rahab protected the spies by lying. Now, lying is a sin, right? In this instance, I really don't think it was. Now, this is the same gray world that Jesus lived in without sin. I don't think Rahab sinned when she lied to these people. Because she had to pick. There wasn't any third choice. She had to pick. Do I pick honesty or the preservation of life? And that was her only two choices. I think she made the right choice, not merely the less wrong choice. Uh, I don't want to shoot anybody, but if they break into my house and are going to do harm to my family, I'm going to shoot them, (laughs) okay? That's not the wrong choice. I mean, that's not not the wrong choice, not the less right choice. It is the right choice in that situation. Now, y'all know I've been talking about John MacArthur. Um, To my dismay, I seem to be one of the few Southern Baptists that are talking about John MacArthur. Uh, the things that makes Baptist Baptists are a commitment to religious liberty, baptism by immersion, and the independence of each local church. Those are pretty much the backbone of what it means to be Baptist. One of those fundamental qualities is that we are committed to religious liberty, and yet I don't see the ethics and religious liberty folks saying a word about John MacArthur, and this distresses me. It distresses me along with the fact that we're seeing our Southern Baptists um, embrace critical race theory as a, as a tool, okay? So we need to watch and we need to pray for our, our Southern Baptist Convention. So John MacArthur is there and he's in a thorny situation because Romans 13 says, Be subject to the governing authorities. That seems clear, right? Be subject to the governing authorities. In Acts 5, though, we read that Peter and company say to the governing authorities, we must obey God rather than men. Hmm. All right, so we got two different things. Now, this is where we as mature Christians have to sit back and go, what do we do? Well, we balance the teachings and we come up with the wise choice, hopefully. Now, Jesus was asked about paying taxes. And do you remember what he said? He said, well, give me a coin. And he looked at the coin and he said, whose image is this? They said, Caesar. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. Now, the church is not Caesar's. (laughs) The church is God's. And so when Caesar comes and tells John MacArthur in Grace Bible Church, you cannot worship. You cannot gather and you cannot worship. And if you do, we're going to put you in jail. 
Well, what John MacArthur said this week was, I've done a lot of ministry and I've had a lot of opportunities, but I've never done jail ministry, so bring it on. (laughs) Amen. All right. So that's how you make a biblical decision. It's not that John MacArthur and Grace Bible Church is doing the less wrong thing. They're doing the right thing by listening to the Word of God, balancing the biblical principles, and going forward based on that. Now back to Jesus healing this guy. Is healing somebody work? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, No matter how hard I try to miraculously heal you, I can't do it. So I don't know if it was work for Jesus or not. But regardless, I think the point of Jesus doing it in front of these Pharisees at this time on the Sabbath was to show that loving God and loving neighbor really are the two most important commandments. People are more important than rules, even good rules. Because as we just saw, Romans 13 says, be be subject to governing authorities. And then in Acts 5, we see the disciples and the apostles not being subject to governing authorities, right? So we have to see that even in the case where Jesus was saying that David went in and ate this bread of the presence, it was the thing for him to do because he was prioritizing people above rules. And you know, while I was thinking about this, I thought, well, but there are other instances where, you know, you you just... Do what God tells you to do. When these people are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, one of them grabs the Ark to make sure it doesn't fall in the mud, and God kills him. Now, it doesn't look like God prioritized people over rules, does it? Well, that was a very different situation. That was regarding the holiness of God and obedience to God. Whereas David going in and eating the bread of the presence was him saying, look, these people are with me, they're tired, they're worn out, they're going to expire if we don't give them some food, right? So he was prioritizing people. Um, In this other case where they grabbed the ark, they weren't prioritizing people. They were just assuming that they were more clean than the dirt, and so they would grab that ark. showed a disdain for the holiness of God. So what do we do with what we're looking at today? Well, I think the first thing is we make sure that we aren't Pharisees. Guys, there's the tendency for us to be Pharisees. It creeps in. And uh, I think if we're honest, we'll all realize that it does. Don't hold your brother to your standard, but hold your brother to a biblical standard. That way we can correct those who go off into sin, but we don't do it in a self-righteous kind of way. The next thing is I hope that we would all realize that following Jesus is about joy. It's not about a dogged determination to be under the set of rules. It is joy and freedom in Christ. Guys, if we'll love God and love people, then you will almost always make the right decision when it comes up to something that's not black and white. When you see opposing, well, not opposing, but could be if you misunderstood them opposing principles in the word of God like obeying government and rebelling against government then you need to say what is going to what's going to be the purest expression of love to God and love to my neighbor and that will help you make the right decision now the sabbath we don't really deal with the sabbath do we uh, we don't we worship on sunday we worship on the day that Christ rose from the grave 
And so we really don't have much of a concept of the Sabbath in the New Testament unless we understand the Sabbath as it's laid out for us in Hebrews chapter 4. And I would recommend you go home and take a look at that today. I won't read the whole thing because I know we're running out of time. But if you look in Hebrews 4, entering into the rest and the peace of God is really about coming to faith in Christ. That is when we can stop our striving and stop our working and live in the freedom that Christ brings. So in that way, we New Testament people very much observe the Sabbath because we find our rest and our peace in Christ. And the way we do that is, guys, if we are trying to justify ourselves based on our good works, man, that's like a little little uh, mouse running on a wheel. We're never going to get anywhere. We're going to run and run and run until we're exhausted and then we're going to die and not making any progress. That's what the law shows us. But when we stop our running and we realize that we have no hope to become righteous except through the righteousness of Christ, then we enter that blessed rest that the Sabbath always pointed to. So when you get home today, read, read Hebrews 4, and I think you'll see that. 